of elementary age kids or below. We'd love them to be a part of what's happening with our Vine Kids Time out this side door. Also, if you have a middle school age kid, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, somewhere in that window, we have a great opportunity for them out front as well as part of our middle school time or mid-high, junior high, however that works. We'd love to be a part of that. Um, For just a few moments before we kind of dive into the Word this morning, we're going to hear from a couple of special guests. Um, A lot of you remember Caitlin Cooch, who was a part of our family for a long time. Uh, We first planted way over at other building. Uh, She was working with crew in Norman when a lot of our crew kids were driving up every Sunday. Well, she has since gone off and gotten married and changed her name. And so her husband, Ryan, and Caitlin Collins are working with crew at Duke University. And so they have left us, but they are taking the Word of God to what some say is the largest mission field in the entire world, which is the college campuses. Uh, More students that come to know Christ, they go disseminate all over the world with that good news. And so Ryan and Caitlin have given their lives to working with college kids, and they're going to tell us this morning about what they're doing, and then I'll tell you about how we can get involved with them. We're so glad you guys are here. Thank you so much. Um, we are so happy to be here. Um, my name is Caitlin Collins, formerly Caitlin Cooch, and um, this is my husband, Ryan. Um, we have had a whirlwind of a past year. We both were living overseas, um, me in Greece and Ryan in Sweden, and we moved back to the States in July, just about a year ago, um, and started working at Duke in August. Um, we got engaged our first week on campus, We got married in February, and um, we spent our third week of marriage on a spring break trip with 70 college students, and our third month of marriage, we spent leading a month-long mission trip with college students in Sweden. So it has been very wild, and um, we're really thankful to be in my home um, and with you all today, and we're excited to share with you just two stories about what we've seen God do um, this past year at Duke. Um, first, I would kind of want to let you know a little bit about Duke. Uh, I didn't, neither one of us really knew much. We were just following where the Lord was leading us. And so um, when we got to campus in August, we realized we didn't know much. And so we started doing some research. And Duke, as we were looking it up, in a lot of college rankings, was ranked number seventh in the U.S. Um, this past year in, of universities and number 15th in the world. And so we realized, started realizing that this is a really competitive university and um, competitive get into, but as we are working with students, it's even more competitive once they're there. Um, And kind of a common theme that we started to see was this idea of effortless perfection, um, where they presented themselves, just like the words say, perfect, without really trying. Um, And so this this caused people to not really let anyone see your weaknesses. Um, If you're having a hard time, um, any difficulties, it was easy. Uh, and so what we started seeing was this led to is- has led to isolation of a lot of students, and there's a big culture of really isolating um, themselves in their dorm rooms, in the library, and studying, um, competing against each other. So one of the ways that we're really trying to bring Christ into their lives is moving people from isolation into community and talking about the gospel in that way. And one of the students that we met this past year, he just showed up within our crew ministry in the fall, and he uh, came to my Bible study, but his name was Rob. And Rob grew up in this town uh, in the northeast somewhere, and his parents had a two-hour commute every day to work, so two hours there, two hours back. And so Rob didn't know how to make friends. 
he would come home and stay at his house to about 10 o'clock every night um, all by himself. So when he got to college, he spent his first two years studying. Um, and this past fall, he's a junior, and he was looking over at the student union as school started. And all these students were like hugging each other, welcoming each other back. And he quickly realized he had no one to hug. Um, There's no one welcoming him back. And so he started seeing how lonely he was. And so he started trying a few ministries. He got involved in my Bible study. And it was really, as he was there, we started seeing his horizontal relationship with friends and not being known had an impact on his vertical relationship with God. And he really couldn't comprehend a God that wants to know him. And so as he began, he said he was a Christian. um, And as he began to become friends with people and in community become known, he started seeing that with God as well. Um, in the past year, Rob has grown so much, and it's just been a big blessing to see him. He really claims his faith now as his own, and he, and he shares it with people. Uh, and that's just an example of, of what we're doing, and it's just a really cool ish, uh, thing of how community really impacts people's lives. And then um, one of our other favorite stories from this past year is um, evangelism at Duke is actually um, technically not allowed. So we have to be pretty creative with the ways that we share the gospel with people. Um, So one of the ways that we do that is whenever students come into college, if they fill out an interest form about getting connected to some sort of ministry, whenever we meet with them for the first time, we always make it a priority to share the gospel. Um, Just as we're sharing about crew, we want to be honest, like, hey, this is what we're about, and we want to share that with you. And so I um, had the privilege of meeting with one girl named Madison in the fall. And um, the first time we sat down, um, we started kind of just getting to know each other, and I um, was sharing with her, and all of a sudden, I saw these tears well up in her eyes, um, and she was like, I have always wanted to know how to become a Christian, but no one has ever told me, and I was always too embarrassed to ask, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the best day of my life, um, so we got to meet for, I mean, the rest of the school year, and um, in December, she decided that she wanted to follow Christ, um, which was so exciting, and then fast forward to March, she was going home for um, spring break, and she asked me if I could teach her how to share the gospel, because her parents and her brother are not Christians, and she wanted to share with them, Um, and for a freshman girl at college, I was just so amazed at how God had grown her um, so extensively in just a short amount of time, and That is a very rare story at Duke. Um, We saw two students trust in Christ this past year out of 6,000 undergrads and 12,000 graduate students. Um, But we are hoping and praying that that, the two girls who came to know Christ, that that will even just be a trajectory of what is to come in the future because we really do see it as um, such a great mission field and such a great opportunity to reach the future leaders of our country with Christ. So thank you all so much for letting us share with you, and we're so glad to be with you. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Appreciate it, brother. Glad y'all are here. So those of you who've been with us for any period of time over the past maybe three or four years, you'd know that we've had a pretty powerful connection with uh, the, the crew ministry, which is formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. We've had a pretty powerful connection with crew for a long time, um, and I don't know what reason. We had six or so other leaders that were driving up from Norman every Sunday, and we felt like a, a, a great hub for 
kind of embracing them and their love for college kids and their love for Christ and then being a, a community that could send them to wherever the Lord was sending them. We really found a great joy there. And, and Caitlin's a great story. I mean, as she came up and sort of was nurtured in, in loving these college kids and loved by us and watching God kind of move her into these next phases and realizing that now they're standing on the Duke campus. She says number seven, which of course means Tech's probably in the top one, two, or three Texas Tech is. I mean, it's not worse than Duke, right? I mean, come on. Um, it's amazing to think about they're standing there sharing the gospel uh, with, with these kids. We, we have a high value for mission in our community. And so uh, you can get on our website and kind of see some of the, 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 the kind of partners and missionaries that we send, and they're on there. We support um, the, Caitlin and, her, and Ryan every, uh, um, every month. We encourage you that if you'd like to do that as well, uh, we'd really encourage that. They're constantly in the process of raising support. That's really not why they're here today. They just want to tell you about what God is doing, but that's kind of my plug for them because being a missionary is really hard, and it takes a lot of work, and so uh, Brandon and Jenny can kind of attest to that and share their story. So if you, you want to be a part of sending this people into the world, right? Think about how we do that as a church, support our life here and support them individually. It's very cool. But it's a great tie into what we're doing here because we're going to talk a little bit this morning about the simplicity of the gospel that uh, we've kind of watched unfold for 66 weeks, right? They haven't been consecutive weeks. We've taken some breaks here and there. But for 66 weeks, we have walked verse by verse, line by line, word by word to the gospel of John. And John's gospel, as I say, each week is really different, right? He's not interested in telling you the historicity of Christ. He's not interested in painting you a picture of all the chronological things that unfolded in the life of Jesus. He wants you to know that Jesus is, in fact, God. John is a, his gospel is a testimony about the deity of Christ. He wants you to know that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the incarnation. And so everything in his gospel is painted in that picture. And we're going to come to a place today where we're in the last breaths, the last few moments of the life of Christ, and we're going to see the simplicity and beauty of the gospel uh, shape up right before Jesus steps into the actions that truly make it the gospel, which is the crucifixion and the resurrection. We're going to see the foundation of that being laid, the foundation that will become the full and abundant and amazing gospel of Christ, the, the gospel that will save us. And we're going to see how the disciples have put their trust and their faith in that, and we're going to see how that lead, leads you and I to kind of take a simplistic look um, at the gospel. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 17. And we're going to be in the first, oh, I don't know, we'll probably only get through three verses today, um, just sort of the way that that works. So for those of you that remember, we're in a, a section of, G, we actually just wrapped up a section of the gospel, chapters 14 through the end of 16, that's called the Farewell Discourse. A lot of scholars call it that because it's this sort of long, uninterrupted teaching period in the life of Christ, and he, he's teaching without metaphor, he's teaching without parable, he's just teaching clearly. And it's from the moment that the Last Supper kind of ends until this moment that Jesus is arrested. And, and Carson preached last week, and he took us into the entry point of this changeover. Now, a lot of people will tell you that, that chapter 17 is a part of this farewell discourse. I think there's really a break there. I actually think that it's end of 13, end of, end of 16, and then we have chapter 17, which is all one recorded lengthy prayer of Christ. He's no longer teaching the disciples. He is now open into this authentic communication with the Father, which gives us an incredible glimpse into the beautiful nature of the relationship that the Father has with the Son. And so chapter 17 is all one recorded prayer of Jesus, where he prays for himself, as Carson talked about last week. Really, he just prays that his, his life would be glorifying to the Father, 
And he wraps up the gospel in a nutshell in John 17, 3, when he says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We'll touch on that again this morning. Praise that God be glorified through him. And then as we're going to see today and over the next week or two, he prays for the disciples, specifically for them. Um, and then he prays for all believers that would come. Jesus is preparing them that he is departing and going back to the Father. And so this is incredible, sort of beautiful, authentic, and deep uh, prayer, this, this sort of glimpse into this um, intense moment that he has. And so I think it's separate from this teaching and now has this sort of farewell prayer. And so we're going to be picking up in the second part of that. Uh, Jesus has, has kind of finished praying for himself, and he's shifting his attention to the disciples. He's going to tell us a couple of really important things about himself and really important things about the disciples before he actually begins praying for them. And we're going to focus on the first sections of that this morning as Jesus gives us a glimpse into sort of what is the powerful foundation that will become the full and beautiful gospel. So if you've got that, open up to, uh, let's say, verse 6, and we'll go through 8 this morning. And let's take a moment, and let's just pray together. God, I am so grateful that I am a part of a community that loves people. I'm grateful that this church would be embracing Congolese families or Honduran families, or Honduran families, or I'm grateful they would embrace the Collins and that we would be a part of sending them to a place where the gospel is not known. I'm grateful for our partnerships around the world. I'm grateful for a church that just loves each other. But more than anything, above all of those things, God, I'm just so grateful that you love me. I'm grateful that you love every single person in this room, that there is nothing we can do to disturb that love, to uh, interrupt it, to break it. That your love is deep and it is real and it is unquenchable. And so, Lord, this morning as we open your word, I pray that you would make it come alive to us, that you would reveal truth to us. Take a moment, just as you sit here this morning, just, in a, just a brief moment to ask the Lord to teach your heart. A lot of these things you may have heard before, a lot of them may sound like things that, that you've known, but ask God to make them fresh and alive to you. Um, pray that God would move in your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for somebody beside you or around you. We do this each week. We want to be a church that is committed to praying for other people. This whole thing that we're a part of on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray that God would move in someone's life, even if you don't know their name. Pray for them. Even if this is your first time, just take a little bit of a risk and, and just pray for somebody you don't know. Just whisper it in your heart. Ask that God would move in them this morning. Lord, as we open your word, um, we recognize that we will not discover you. As we'll see today, you are a revealer of all truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach our hearts this morning. And we ask this in the resurrected name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So John 17, verse 6, is the second section in this recorded prayer that Jesus has. The first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself, and as I said, really he's praying that he would be, his, he would be glorified, and in turn that glorification would, would be glorifying to the Father, that his entire earthly ministry would be glorifying to the Father. In fact, the title of our entire series, now this is Eternal Life, that we've been on for the past 66 weeks, is really born out of John 17, 3, which is my favorite verse in all of scripture and has been forever because it captures the, the, 
gospel in a perfect picture. And I'll explain that a little bit more in a, in a moment. But Jesus basically says, this is what I've existed for. This is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God. There are no other gods. And me, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that they would know us, that our relationship to know one is to know the other, and they would believe and trust and have eternal life, the foundations for the gospel that we'll see. And Jesus is going to say a couple of really important things about himself and a couple of really important things about the disciples before he actually begins praying for them. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So this is John 17, uh, and we'll go 6 through 8. He says, I have revealed you to, the, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and I, they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. And then verse 9 is going to start, as we'll look at next week. I pray for them. And Jesus is speaking directly about the disciples, because in just a moment he's going to talk about all the believers. But he's talking about the disciples as they existed, the 11, and you'll see next week the, the one that... But Jesus is talking directly about them, and he says a couple of really important things about his nature in regard to the disciples, and also in regard to us as followers of Christ. And then he says a couple of really important things about the disciples. And, and the first thing that we've got to understand is that Jesus reveals in that first statement the nature of who he is. So he says this, I have revealed you to those who you gave me out of the world. So here's what we know about Jesus. We've been talking about this in John's sort of theological movement of this gospel. He says, I have revealed you to those you have given me out of the world. Now we know that Jesus talks constantly about his relationship with the Father, that I and the Father are one. If they love me, they love you. If they love you, they love me. To reject me is to reject you. And so Jesus says, I am the expression, I am the incarnation of you. And I have revealed you right, to those that you have given me out of the world. So here's what we know in that first statement. Jesus calls those that the Father has given him, and Jesus reveals the Father by his very nature to those that have been given to him. So in short, Jesus calls and Jesus reveals. Now, if you've heard me teach it all over the past five or so years, or however long it's been, these are constant themes that come up because theologically they are so incredibly important. Jesus is the one who calls. He's the one that takes initiation with all of creation. We see this from the beginning of Scripture on, that God takes initiative with creation, from Abraham to Moses to anybody that you want to, the disciples to calling Peter out of the water, all through Scripture. It's God who takes the initiation with creation and calls them. Remember when Jesus called the disciples way back some 60 weeks ago, we were talking about the calling of the disciples. It was Jesus who called the disciples out of their way of life. Well, this means the disciples didn't get together and say, you know what, I think I'm going to follow Jesus today. They were going about their business and their life, and Jesus walks up to them and says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. It says that they dropped their nets and they followed him, Peter. Jesus calls, and he says he calls those that the Father had given him out of the world. So Jesus takes this initiation and he calls those out of the world. And I deeply believe that if you're sitting here this morning in this place, God has called you, that he has taken a movement in your heart and drawn you here. You did not end up in this place or in your Christian faith as a result of your own initiative, as a result of your own movement. Hey, I tried everything else. I think I'm going to give this God thing a, a, a shot and see if it works. <clears throat> Scripture is very clear. God has to stir our hearts and draw us to himself. So from a theological standpoint, which is really important, God is not the result 
of our journey, right? God begins the journey in the first place. He sets our hearts in motion on fire and begins to move and call us. And he says, I have called those that you gave me out of the world. But he also says really something powerful in the first statement. He says, I have revealed you to those that you gave me. So I have revealed you, which means the, the, the motion of Jesus, <clears throat> right? The purpose of Christ's life was to reveal the glory of the Father. So Jesus says, I called those that you gave me, and I revealed you to them. How did Jesus reveal the Father to the disciples? Well, through his very existence. Jesus was the revelation of God. He was the incarnation, the full expression of God and a form of man. And he says, I have revealed your glory to those that you gave me. This means that God is the revealer of all truth. The person of Jesus Christ, his very nature is to reveal the nature of God, right? You've probably heard me say this a ton of times. God is not the result of your mental journey. We don't explore all other options and then say, you know what? This just sort of happens to lead me to God. No, God reveals himself and his perfect and wonderful timing. And this is all really important because we live in a culture that tells you that if you just seek truth, you will find what truth is. And it's a lie. Truth is not a relative, subjective journey that we end up at some place at the end of our life. True, real truth, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, is revealed by Jesus. We don't come to it as kind of a, a end game. And so Jesus says the very nature of who I am, Father, as he's praying, as he's saying, I have revealed you and your glory right through me to those that you gave me to call out of the world. In other words, I did exactly what our nature was. I called those. I took initiation with the ones that you have given me, and I revealed you by my nature to them. The the disciples did not figure Jesus out. They did not sit there and go, you know what, I want to follow this guy because he's really great, and I kind of think that he's God's son. No, no. They fought that the whole way. Jesus revealed in his perfect timing. We'll get to why this is important in a moment, but Jesus says that about his nature. <clears throat> and then he says, <clears throat> excuse me, something really important about the disciples, which is, is fascinating. So he says this, I have, they were yours. You gave them to me and I, they have obeyed your word. Now they know everything you have given comes from you. All right, given me has come from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. All right, and the disciples, they have accepted them and they know with certainty that I came from you and they believe that you sent me. So Jesus says that I have called those that you have given me. I have revealed you to them. I have given them the words that you gave me. And what essentially Jesus is saying there is that everything that you have told me, I have told them. What this means is that the very words of Jesus are the words of God. That Jesus is the Logos, right? We talked about that in John 1, the Logos of God, and that Jesus' very existence is God's word, and that he gave the disciples the words that God gave to Jesus to give them. This means that every word that fell from the lips of Christ is the word of God, not the ones that we want to use, right? Not the ones that sound really good in a Hallmark card or on an Instagram post or, or whatever, but every single breath that came from Jesus' lips is the word of God. And it carries the authority of the word of God. I gave them the words that you gave me. In other words, my voice is your voice. My words are your words. Solidifying that relationship between the father and the son that we are in fact one. And he says, this is what the disciples did with that truth. They accepted them, those words. 
They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So here's what he says about the disciples, the ones that he has called, the ones that he has revealed truth to, the ones that he has given the words of God to, right? He says they accepted those words. They believed that you sent me, right? With certainty, they believed that you sent me. Now, does this sound like the disciples we've looked at over the past 15 chapters, 16 chapters? Absolutely not, right? Jesus describes them as having accepted the words of God, having known and believed with certainty that, they, that Jesus came from the Father and believed that you had sent me. So they accepted, they knew with certainty, and they believed. And none of that had unfolded over the past 15 chapters. The disciples were all over the road. They argued with Jesus all the time. They were like, this teaching's so hard. In fact, we're not sure we want to stick around anymore if you remember the middle of the Gospel of John. They didn't understand three chapters ago when Jesus was talking, and they were saying, what do these words mean? But if you remember two weeks ago, if you were here, something incredible transpires in John 16. So in the middle of this discourse, while Jesus is talking, he gets interrupted by the disciples in 1629, and they say this. The disciples interrupt this long talk by Jesus, <clears throat> and they say, now you are speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need anyone to ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. And Jesus says, you believe it last. And he's kind of got that rhetorical kind of statement in it. Now, I don't know what happened, right? Because as I told you two weeks ago, Jesus doesn't say anything different. But I think when you take the entirety of this discourse, 14 <clears throat> through 16, something just works. God just opens the floodgates of faith. And the disciples just get it. And they say, you're not talking in, in, in stories, you're talking clearly, and we believe that you came from the Father. And it's on those moments that Jesus actually really forms this prayer. When he's talking to the Lord, he basically says, let me tell you about these guys that you've given me that I've called out of the world. I gave them the words, and they accepted them. They believed them, and they knew with certainty that I came from you, right? And they believed that you sent me. So they Somewhere along this line, God has opened this floodgates of faith and they accepted the words and they believed with certainty and they trusted that Jesus was who he said he was. And then Jesus in verse nine says, these are who I pray for. <clears throat> as I was looking at that this week and as I was thinking about it towards the end of the week, I really thought about sort of the nature of the gospel itself, right? Um, because we live in a world that has politicized and socialized the gospel to the extreme. We have taken it and flipped it upside down. We've attached it to our agendas. We've attached it to our moral agendas. We've attached our social agendas. We've turned it into a series of moral rights and wrongs, series of soapboxes that we stand on, depending on what we're moved by during that day. We say we follow Christ until we actually have to put any of that into motion, and then all of a sudden, I only follow Christ when it's convenient or when it doesn't look bad publicly or when Jesus doesn't call me to do something that I'm not quite ready to handle. The gospel has become a a sort of a picture of some kind of moralistic social stance that most of us are willing to stand on most of the time. And as I look at how Jesus explained the disciples to the Father, he doesn't make this grand argument to say, hey, look, I know they haven't believed for a long time, 
<clears throat> but they're doing really great things. Remember I sent them out and they cast out demons and did really cool things and, and Peter walked on the water. He doesn't make a claim for their active faith. Jesus doesn't make a claim that they worked really hard and look where they've come from, right? They were all fishermen and some tax collectors. Three years ago, they didn't know anything and now they're starting to get it. He's not pleading with God to show their sort of movements, their faith in action. He doesn't make any of those claims. He just says, the ones that you gave me that I called and revealed truth to, they've accepted your words, the words from me. They believe with certainty, right? With certainty. And they believe that you sent me. And I started thinking about my own life and sort of how I have taken the gospel even in my own heart and turned it into a, a series of hoops that I try and perform for Christ for. To let him know that I'm really giving it my everything, even though it's really hard. Look at the ways I'm trying, the ways I'm trying to make adjustments and change. That The gospel has become something that we try to manipulate to prove that we really believe that God is real. So that God won't punish us for our moments of lack of faith. That's how a lot of us live our lives. We try and perform for this God who we want to think we're giving our best to. And as Jesus explains to the Father, really just sort of in this moment of prayer, I begin to realize the simplicity of this gospel, right? Jesus has yet to die and yet to be raised from the dead. So at this moment, it's sort of an incomplete gospel, but it's the foundation that they believe that this Jesus was sent by the Father. They knew with certainty. <clears throat> 30 minutes ago, they wouldn't have known with certainty, but something has transpired and God has opened the floodgates of faith and they have bought into this. And that certainty is going to be the foundation that when they walk to that empty tomb in a few short days, right, when Peter and John go running through that rolled back stone, they are going to believe that he is risen. It is going to become the foundation for believing in the gospel where Jesus is not dead. As a culture, as a Christian culture, we have turned the gospel into a series of denominations. We've turned the gospel into a series of worship styles, celebrity pastors, Christian bookstores that are filled with millions and millions and millions of titles about how to live this thing out to the best of our ability. And while all of those things are not inherently wrong in themselves, I do think they've distracted us from the true nature of the gospel. And anything that takes away from that true nature of the gospel or adds anything to it is actually not the gospel at all. <clears throat> that you and I are dead and in desperate need of a Savior. No matter what you walked in here with this morning, no matter how much baggage or luggage, good or bad, how much money or stuff or things or places or direction you came from, we are all sitting in the exact same place. Like the disciples, we are bankrupt. And I believe if you are sitting here, God has, has called you out of the world. I believe you wandered in here on your own accord. I believe that God is actively moving in you and he has drawn you to a place and he is revealing truth to you through his word. He is giving you the very word of God. And like the disciples, the response is, well, it's called to be something simple. I accept your word. I believe with certainty, Jesus, that you are who you say you are. And I believe that you came from the Father. And Jesus uses that as a foundation to say, these are mine. These are mine. And I was asking myself a question this weekend. <coughs> Excuse me. What makes my heart belong to Jesus? 
Is it this? Is it standing up here? Making sure that I can read the Bible and I know like eight Greek words, right? Most of them are and and the. Or is it those three little things that I accept the word that was revealed to me, that I believe with certainty that Jesus is who he said he was, that I believe he came from the Father. Because this is what Jesus says makes the disciples his. And he looks at this in verse nine, we're gonna see next week, he says, and this is who I pray for. The simplicity of the gospel that we have perverted somehow just crushes my heart. Our Western church has just destroyed the simplistic concept of believing in who Jesus was, right? Trusting him and surrendering my soul, my heart, myself to him. And we have socialized and politicized every piece of it. And I believe it breaks God's heart because anything that adds to or subtracts from the nature of the gospel that we are dead and in need of Jesus and he died and rose from the dead so that we could have true, abundant, eternal life that begins today. Anything that subtracts or adds to that right, is not really the gospel. So I had the, the privilege last night, and some, several of you here did, of coming and being a part of LJ and Ruth Scott 50th wedding anniversary. So LJ and Ruth, if you met them, they've been coming for a little while. They're Brandon's parents. Um, they moved from Flower Mound up here when Brandon and Jenny and the kids moved here and became part of our community. They moved up here to be closer to them and to their, their grandkids. And they celebrated 50 years of marriage last night, which is 25 more years than I've been alive, right? They celebrated that last night, which I just blew my mind, right? I was like, God, I haven't even been around that long, and I just, um, but it was incredible, and so they had a bunch of people going around telling stories, and it comes to the very end, and, and LJ and, and Ruth get to say a few words to this kind of, we had, we were actually in here having dinner and whatnot, and, and Ruth simply says this. She says, Here's the secret to 50 years of marriage. You know, of course, everyone's gripping the table because we're all barely making it, right? And so she says, the secret is Jesus Christ. I don't really have any other thing to say except without Jesus, we don't do it, is essentially what she says. There was no great advice wrapped up in there about loving well and giving gifts and forgiving and all those kind of things. It was just simply the only explanation that I have for why we've been able to make it 50 years is Jesus. And when I started thinking about this text and what Ruth was saying last night, what it reminded me was is that there's no real explanation for how the disciples lived this life. There was no kind of proclamation from Jesus to the Father saying, look what they've done for the past three years, how much they've endured and given up and sacrificed. Like, surely we should give them grace. No, he just says, they believed in me with certainty. They believed the word and they accepted it. And that makes them mine. The incredible news for you and I as I wrap this up this morning is that that is all that God will ever require of you is to just release your heart to believe, to believe and to trust and to have faith that Jesus is who he said he is. That's it. No series of performances or actions. Those all come as an outward flow of that faith that we put in Christ. They become a re living response. But what makes us marked by the Father 
is when Jesus looks at the Father and he says, they, and they accepted your word, which is me, the logos. They accepted me, the word of God. And they believed with certainty that I was from you. And they believed that you sent me. And I thought at the end of my whole life, at every breath that I breathed, you know, we, all I would hope for is that Jesus would advocate for me before the Father and just say, he believed with certainty that I was your son. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you're dealing with, struggling with, whatever pieces they are, but I can promise you this, they're probably complicated probably broken relationships and marriages and struggles and finances and stuff and kids and things or no kids or no husband or no finances, whatever they are, right? And I can't tell you that any of those things are going to be fixed or answered or made better. But the simplicity of the gospel where Jesus says, you are mine, changes everything. And it is the only way that we will make it through this world. Maybe 50 years later, where we're drawing breath, whether that's married or not, where we're drawing breath, the only way that we survive and make it with joy is with Jesus. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for me? So next week, we're gonna see how Jesus begins to pray for the disciples and then for all believers. But we can graft ourselves in to this because it's Jesus who calls and who revealed the Father. It's Jesus who gave us the words the Father gave him. He's the Logos. And our hearts have just gotta be open to say, I accept and I believe with certainty, and I trust that you are who you say you are. It's the simple gospel, right? Not the fancy fog machine gospel, but just the gospel, the gospel that says I did nothing and you did everything. Jesus, without you, I can't do it. You are the only reason. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just a simple message. I tried to complicate this one up yesterday, but gave up. Um, because it's just there. It's just there. And so, Lord, I thank you for the truth wrapped up in there, that you are the revealer of truth. You are revealer of the nature of God. You are the giver of God's word. You are the caller of people. And the disciples, at whatever point that was, it wasn't a perfect faith. It was a faith that was clunky and, and bumpy and, and lived out really in a, in, a, in a very difficult way, but that faith, It was what marked them as belonging to the Father, that they accepted your words. They believed with certainty that I was from you and believed that you sent me. God, I don't have answers to all the other things in life. I don't have answers to why people die and why tragic things happen and why things like unfolded in Branson this week happen. I have no answers for any of those things. I have no answers for the tragedies around the world and why people's groups are displaced and I don't have answers for any of those things. But what I do know with certainty, with every ounce of my living being, is that Jesus, you are God. That your words are true, that you have rescued and saved me, and that you are from the Father and that you came for me. And Jesus, that is enough for me. And I pray that becomes our prayer as a church and as individuals. That the simple gospel becomes the foundation for which we live and we breathe and we love and we dance and we sing. It's just